All right. Well, while we're all getting situated, allow me to introduce myself. I am Will Fenton. I'm the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I have the pleasure of acting as a host of this evening and many others of this weekly series called Library Company Fireside Chats. The whole idea behind Fireside Chats is that we focus in on a specific topic or issue and we allow one of our fellows or former fellows to talk about their research that was driven by our collections but you know has of course grown in all sorts of generative ways. Um, our fireside chats are pretty much booked up through the summer. We're going to be continuing these on a weekly basis every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern time, all the way through August, probably into September, maybe beyond. We'll see how our um, fellowship community rallies behind them. Um, and they will be automatically recorded. So because we're running this through something called Zoom, they'll be recorded and then we'll do a light edit and we'll put them up on YouTube. So if you have friends or colleagues who can't participate right now, uh, we will be sending along a link in the next week that allows you to share the video recording for anyone who might be interested. Um, a couple of quick notes about the structure of these. These are webinars, uh, so uh, our interaction is limited a little bit by the structure. Um, so I encourage you to use the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. I see that some folks have already found it. Um, Deja has chimed in with the um, password, which is now moot. But I encourage all of you to uh, scroll down to the bottom of your screen and to use the Q&A button to submit any question along the way. So if you hear something that's interesting to you, record it before you forget. And I'll do my best to work through all of the questions and I'll try to work through them sort of in the sequence that they arrive. Um, while our guest is speaking, if I have anything that I can share, I will be using the chat feature, which is also accessible through the bottom of the screen. So if I come up with a link to a library company resource or something else, I'll put that out there. And of course, when we're sending out the links to the recorded video later down the road, you'll have all sorts of links that will hopefully be helpful there. Um, finally, if this is something that you're excited about and you're interested in other library company programs, maybe this is your first library company program. That would be lovely. Um, we have a email list that I encourage you to sign up for. Um, that happens uh, on the library company homepage. So you go to librarycompany.org, scroll to the bottom of the screen and join our mailing list. So I encourage you to sign up if you haven't already. We always love to send along emails for all the wonderful things that we're doing at the library company, even when we're not in our building. So um, today I am joined by Mark Valeri, uh, who has a more prodigious hearth than I do. Um, you've seen my little guy, and that's a proper fireplace behind him. Mark is the Reverend Priscilla Wood Neves Distinguished Professor of Religion and Politics in the John C. Danworth, Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Valeri has written about religion in the American Revolution and religion and commerce in colonial New England. His most recent book is Heavenly Merchandise, How Religion Shaped Commerce in Puritan America. He's currently working on conceptions of conversion, depictions of other religions and politics in Anglo-America from the English Civil War through the American Revolution. Notably, Dr. Valeri was our Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Library Company back in 1994. So with that, I'm going to get out of your hair and pass the, the, uh, the, the uh, mic over to uh, Dr. Valeri. Good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your presence to hear uh, a talk on history. Uh, a well-deserved uh, break, perhaps, from contemporary concerns that we all share a lot. 
the project I've been working on and have used the library company for concerns how Protestants in Britain and America described other religions and how that description changed in the 18th century from the 17th century. I got interested in it because there was a, a burst of literature that had to do with descriptions of other religions in the 17th and 18th centuries. It had to do with merchants traveling, with colonial ventures, with uh, international commerce, with networks, scholarly networks. And there was a flourishing of publications, of sermons, of travel accounts, all of which described to a remarkable extent, surprising to me, on how frequently 18th century British uh, people in, in Britain and in, in the British colonies in North America talked about the, the variety of religions in the world. When I went into the project, I assumed a fairly standard shallow view of things, which is Protestant English descriptions of other religions from 1600 to 1800 were for the most part unceasingly, unendingly pejorative and critical, tainted with colonial agendas and racist ideology that the whole description process throughout these two centuries was one great program of debasing other religions and lifting up British Protestantism. But as I began to look at the literature, I noticed a change. And I want to illustrate that change that I noticed. And that change is the subject of my project through a couple of views. Yeah, if I can get this to work. There we go. Uh, this is the, uh, one of the books from the older 6th, 17th century generation of books on the world religions. It's by uh, a hack publisher, a, a very uh, uh, entrepreneurial man named Nathaniel Crouch, who lived in London and plagiarized from travel accounts and other books on world religions and put together widely popular books designed for popular consumption. These were the books that sold uh, relatively rapidly on the streets of London. He goes by a pseudonym here. I'm gonna use my arrow to point out. RD is a pseudonym, his Nathaniel Crouch. This is the old view that begins our period. Uh, it's, it has to do with strange and prodigious religions, customs, and manners. And the frontispiece that opens the book shares a rather bizarre picture of what Crouch took to be an Indian deity underneath a tent of idolatry and superstition. This is the way that 17th century Britons, for the large part, produced a literature of other religions, that anything that was not British and Protestant was uh, malicious and false and not worthy of anything but entertainment value. Here, for example, in the middle of Crouch's book, he includes an image of what he calls the manner of the ancient Virginians, or what we would call today the, the Algonquian peoples of the Tidewater region. He portrays uh, these uh, worship ceremonies as dancing around a fire, Fire became a trope and image throughout this whole period of dangerous, violent, 
irrational religious experience. And then he has at the middle of the picture a pedestal upon which is perched a figure of the devil himself. So idolatry, and especially devil worship, was at the center of the 17th century project on describing other religions. There are other idols here, the golden calf of the Hebrews, the snake of the Egyptians. And Crouch dressed his Algonquian peoples in English clothing because he was trying to make a statement about the dangers of these um, idolatrous forms of worship in England. It was not only Crouch in his books that conveyed this in a popular level, uh, this negative view of other religions, but also in, in popular publications such as decks of playing cards. So is, here's one card from a deck of playing cards produced in seven, the 1650s by an architect named Wynn Stanley, who was also a drawer. And he gave each card a nation, assigned each card to a nation, and described the religion of that nation, as though nations had religions. And this is the nation of, of India, the city of Shaul in the background. And the description is of a debased form of heathenism. And his image for that is a, an Indian devotee, a, a cannibalistically eating the leg of a deceased relative, uh, in order to give them eternal life by passing on their life into their form. So that's the 17th century presentation visually of other religions. Contrast this to a mid 18th century view. This is the largest, fullest dictionary produced by an English person in the period. Thomas Broughton is his name, a scholarly rector in Huntingtonshire who produces this book in 1742, an historical dictionary of all religions. And notice the frontispiece that introduces Broughton's dictionary of all the religions of the world. It is a marvelous engraving. And you'll notice it has a pillar, a pedestal, not unlike Crouch, with the golden calf on top, but there's no devil image. It is an image that idolatry is still a temptation, but Broughton links it in the background to these forms of heightened ceremonial worship, a Christian cathedral, an Islamic mosque with um, ecstatic devotees, an Egyptian pyramid, and an ancient classical pagan temple where uh, devotees bring animals for sacrifice. And here at the bottom, Broughton's image of an Indian ascetic worshiping before what we would think of today as a Hindu god. There is still something menacing about these other religions, except that Christianity is included. And then Broughton places at the center of his frontispiece three images. These for him are commendable religions. The qualities of religious practice or teaching which is, is worthwhile and worthy of adherence. This is the figure of Moses holding the commandments of the, uh, of the law. This is Mary holding a simple plain cross and a cup of communion. And beneath her are Roman 
Catholic devotees with symbols of power, so it's a Protestant Mary. And here, of all things, is a figure out of the Islamic tradition, Ali, who was the son-in-law of Muhammad and by tradition the figurehead of the Shiite sect of Islam. And Broughton describes Ali, and he's holding a copy of the Quran here, is also revealing something of divine truth because it's morally reasonable and uh, with the teachings on almsgiving and care for the poor, this is a version of religion which is commendable. So in Broughton's frontispiece, we, he, we see a shift from Crouch in the 17th century, everything is demonic and malevolent and dangerous, to dividing religions into their, if you will, commendable moral and social teachings, uh, Judaism with the moral law, Christianity with its simple piety and devotion, and Ali with the scriptural uh, traditions within Islam as being those parts of any religious tradition which are worthy of consideration. What my project attempts to do is explain this change, how we get from the 17th century pejorative view, a theological critique of all religion as malevolent and unworthy of consideration, illegitimate, to a mid-18th century view when religions are not taken as a whole, but evaluated according to local practice and traditions, and especially their social behavior that they inculcate. What is it about certain religions that have good moral teaching, simple piety, and deference to scripture? The texts I'm going to use today are, come from, uh, are published in London, Crouch was published in London, Broughton was published in London, and the third text I will use was published in London. But I also had questions about how prevalent these texts and these ideas were in colonial America. Were they imported? Were they bought? Were they purchased? Were they owned? Were they discussed? And so I had to go to American repositories, and here's where the library company uh, helped me so much because the library company has one of the richest repositories of these texts because Benjamin Franklin, of all people, was wild about studying other religions. He collected every single title that Nathaniel Crouch published. He actually got rid of some old Puritan books in order to pay for Crouch's studies of the world religions. He had a copy of Broughton, and the library company has a copy of the third book I will mention, Bernard and Picard's uh, Ceremonies and Religious Customs of the World. And it's one of the few libraries that hold uh, that elaborate uh, Bernard and Picard volume, as we refer to it. What's great about the library company, in addition, is the librarians there help me understand when these books were acquired. They were acquired indeed in the mid 18th century. So we can say that at least the people of Philadelphia had access to these works and these ideas, as did people in New England where they were held at, at Harvard and Yale. So back to the question, how did this change come about? One of the usual explanations for this change is that it was the rise of just a teaching about reasonableness, the enlightenment, uh, a human human or humane drive for toleration. 
and which is true in the more formal philosophic and historical texts, but on the popular level, on the level of dictionaries and encyclopedias that were used and held in libraries for popular consumption, the reason for this change seems to me to be more political. Something was going on in the politics in London, in British politics, that compelled this way to discuss different religions. I can trace it, in fact, uh, very much to the accession of George I in 1714. In 1714, uh, George I assumed the monarchy of England and began the Hanoverian reign. And these Hanoverians instituted or consolidated the power of the Whig political group in London. From 1688, with the Glorious Revolution, uh, there was some contest whether the Whigs, the liberal constitutional party of John Locke, or the conservatives, the Tories, would gain power over the monarchy. And when George I came to the throne, he came to the throne as a Whig. And his parliament was a Whig parliament, the parliament of constitutional rights, the progressive par uh, party, if you will. And that party wanted to rule England as an empire and to establish England as an empire where people from different religious traditions would gather together under a sense of national unity. That religious conflicts and theological quarrels would be set aside in the realm of the public for the sake of this British imperial project which reached overseas. So political writers in this period wrote about religions and their ability to contrib contribute to Britain's political life. And what they often said was, we like, if you will, for the sake of England's political well-being, religions that promote politeness, benevolence, and sensibility, uh, accommodation for other people in the public. Because what threatens Britain's political state more than anything else is faction. People who are dogmatic religiously and hold on to the theological positions with great force and zeal, zealotry is bad, divide the empire, divide Britain, and will weaken it. While religions which promote mutual concern and humaneness will bring the empire together. So that's one social or moral quality which the political leaders um, advocate and push to help Britain come together. This is in popular literature, Daniel Defoe, Addison and Steele, Shaftesbury, Trenchard and Gordon, these popular writers who talked about benevolence, solidarity, and opposition to faction. The second quality they all sought was uh, we can put together under the basket, sort of in the basket of reasonableness or civility, learning. Because if religions promote the same language in public of learning of reasonableness, a language which all people could share, then that would bring people together in a common moral sentiment. They knew how to talk the same language about what it was right and what was wrong. For these writers then, the greatest concern was a form of religion which was ecstatic, mysterious, ceremonial, led by powerful priests 
who would call people to follow with zealotry their sect or religious tradition as opposed to others and condemn others and try to grab power. Religious traditions that were after political power were the great danger, according to these political writers. And of course, they found that ceremonial, priestly, power-grabbing religion, especially in Roman Catholicism. So throughout this period in the mid-18th century, there's an attention to variety within different religions, not dismissing or accepting religions as a whole, but deciding which parts of those religions promoted those virtues upon which Britain stood and rejecting those parts of religion which threatened the well-being of the empire. Let me go to a third um, set of images for you from this Bernard and Picard Ceremonies and Religious Customs. Frederick Bernard and Bernard Picard were two Frenchmen. They were Huguenots or French Protestants who had been exiled from France, so they had an anti-Catholic animus, if you will, but they were exiled from France and ended up in Amsterdam and The Hague. Bernard was the writer of the prose of this massive uh, encyclopedia of world religions, and Picard was the engraver. And the book is often known, known merely by Picard's name because the engravings are so wonderful. They are so evocative. And I think what Picard was doing was trying to get uh, if you will, the theory and the narrative of good religion as opposed to bad religion. Give it visceral, emotional pull through imagery, through visual imagery. They were very close friends with English Whigs. They did books on William III. Uh, they were great admirers of the, the British people who they met in Amsterdam and who they met at The Hague. They were known in Britain. They were admired. They were extolled uh, as the greatest engraver and writers of religion of the period. So here's the first image from them I want to show you. They devote a lot of material to Catholicism. What are they saying about Catholicism? Well, this is the first, th this is one of the things they say. This is a huge fold-out uh, image. It's a huge book in the first place, but it's folded out into six pages, folio pages, and this shows a massive parade at the center of where, right here, if you can see my arrow, is a carriage carrying a pope who has just been elected to the papacy, and he's being carried up the Lateran Hill in Rome to the Lateran Palace, where he will be enthroned as the new pontiff. He is surrounded in this massive public display by military power and by statesmen. This is the image of a religious tradition, Papal Roman Catholicism, which is nefarious because it seeks power, it seeks to control, it seeks to coerce, it seeks to force its will upon its people. Here is Picard's image of the coronation of the Pope himself. This is the coronation of Benedict the 13th in 1724. There happened to be several papal 
uh, elections. Popes didn't last long in, in this period, it seems to me. There was a papal election in 1721, in 1724, 1730, and 1740. And so there were lots of opportunities for Protestants to view uh, this material and for Bernard and Picard to have drawings and instructions on what went on. And here you see uh, Benedict XIII being coronated with the papal tiara. You might wonder why is it called a coronation? That sounds like a political act and that is the very point. It is called a coronation and it is meant that the Pope is taking political, uh, assuming pol a political position along with his ecclesiastical position. So this image seems like a rather sweet and simple image of a heightened ceremony, but for the writers of this day, this projects the dangerous, ins the dangerous tendency within Catholicism to claim coercive power. Contrast this with Picard's images of a simple parish mass. This is uh, his series of pictures of a mass in a parish church. He doesn't identify where. There is a, a priest dressed relatively simply with two acolytes and there's nothing menacing about this. This is not an intimidating display of power. This is a scene of relatively admirable devotion as the priest performs the various uh, the Eucharistic functions. In fact, Bernard, Bernard comments that these paintings are paintings of the passion, the passion of Jesus Christ, his suffering, his trial, his punishment, uh, the cross, and uh, Bernard points out that the priest must be teaching his people that true religion gives up power, does not assume power, but retreats from power and teaches people about the eternal verities, the truth of salvation and redemption. So even within Catholicism, the literature of the period, and it's not just Bernard and Picard, it's across all the literature, uh, expresses admiration for some forms of Catholicism, just as though, just as there were Catholic chapels and schools in Britain in this period, which were assumed to be patriotic and loyal and even Whiggish in their disposition, that could be admired. Not whole religions, but religions divided into their socially and politically useful or admirable forms. Back to the other form of Catholicism. This is the most striking image to me in all of Picard and Bernard's book. It is um, a picture of a 1712 ceremony for the canonization of saints. Clement XI is the Pope at this time in 1712. This is St. Peter's Cathedral. And you will see how much this image uh, almost takes you up into this scene. It's, it, it's breathtaking in its size, in its magnitude. It is meant to give you a sense of awe that's evoked. Here is, whoop, wrong way. Here is the image of the Pope right in the middle, and before him are devotees being obeisant uh, before him on the steps. These are about 150 clergy and political powers from Rome watching. And then here are images and statues of uh, Catholic saints, and then a huge image of, where, of Mary, huge tapestries, and the massive walls underneath a vaulted ceiling. And 
there has been hung a false ceiling, a drapery hung across the middle to create a great scene of a, what's called a stage, an ecclesiastical stage. This is meant as to evoke mystery and awe and deference and to move people off of their rational social moral selves into complete obeisance to papal power. This is the language that Protestant writers use of Catholicism. It uses ceremony to make people zealots, to make people run out and do anything they, that the Pope tells them to do, to pers persecute Protestants, to try to overthrow the English monarchy, to divide the kingdom. So it looks to be a view of a description of another religion, but it's loaded with political meaning. What's interesting to me is how Picard took this attitude towards Catholicism, and he projected it upon all the religions of the world. He could go to almost any religious tradition and find something that was powerful and political and disparage it as a bad form of religion and find within, within that similar religion something that was learned and simple and devout and admire it. So we go from this, the canonization ceremony, to Picard's image of a Buddhist temple in Japan. You'll notice how similar this image is to St. Peter's. The huge walls, the vaulted ceiling, the, the draped uh, false ceiling, the saints around the edges, the worshipers in obeisance and falling down irrationally before their God, the Buddha, and here the menacing fire that represents irrationality. What Picard did then is go through every religions of the world, Aztec, ceremonial, sacrificial, powerful religion versus the simple religion of Mexican peasants and priests. But here again, you see the similarity. Catholicism projects itself in the world in a form of Buddhism, which is also nefarious and dangerous. Or we can go to Islam. In, in Bernard and Picard's book, here is a scene uh, taken uh, from Istanbul, a feast that marks the end of Ramadan. And here we have a scene of ecstasy, of frenzy almost, the Islamic leader swinging on a swing. There's another one in the background here across the streets in a display of heightened emotionalism. And there are all sorts of immoral things going on in the crowd. Here, for example, is a money lender. You could see up close extorting money from a poor a woman borrower. So Istanbul is Sunni Islam is powerful Islam, is violent, is the Islam of the Ottoman Empire, religion grasping for power and being coercive, seducing people away, as opposed to this sort of Islam. Teacher of a mufti, a much admired uh, plate from uh, Picard, much admired in the period and talked about by art historians ever since. Here is a teacher undoubtedly belonging to um, a sectarian movement, a small sectarian movement, could be in a small, uh, almost house mosque in Istanbul, or could be in Baghdad, where there were schools of Islam that flourished, that were mystical, 
that uh, eschewed power and didn't grasp for power, that was not violent, that, and you can see the image uh, conveys devoutness, a hand lifted to heaven, a very serene face, and again, scriptural religion, teaching from the Quran. This is an admirable form of Islam because it meets the political and moral criteria that these Whigs were looking for as they wanted to put together the British imperial project or Native American traditions. What we have here is uh, the image from Bernard and Picard's book of an Algonquian uh, uh, deity. He took this picture from an earlier image of a 17th century book. This is a 17th century picture of the worship of, of the Algonquian people of the Tidewater region. This, as that book convey, uh, says, is Powhatan, the sachem of the, of, of the Tidewater people, who is made into an oversized idol, and beneath him sacrifice, human sacrifices are going on, the nefarious fire, devotees bowing themselves in a zealous subservience in a, something that looks like a, a Native American form of a palace. What Picard did is he took this image and transferred it to something much less menacing because he wanted to convey the sense that in Amer Native American traditions, there was a simple, natural, instinctive, non-political piety that, British, that the British Empire would find uh, accommodating, that they could take these Algonquin people into the empire because they were not political threats. So we've taken this menacing image to a simple image on, on a pedestal. It's renamed the God of the Winds. It's no longer named after a political figure, Powhatan. And the did that too soon. So you can see how Picard is trying to convey this new view of religions. One final image, which is the frontispiece to Bernard and Picard's book. And all of these themes come together. Uh, I can't exposit this at length, but just to say that here is the figure of, of true religion, Protestant Christianity with the Bible. Here is false religion, Catholicism and she is receiving political power. This is an image for the Holy Roman Empire, giving the scepter political power to the Roman church. Uh, just one more comment then on the Islamic figures in the bottom. Here is the good Islam, if you will, scriptural moral of Ali, and here in the lower right is the bad Islam of Sunni teaching where it condemns non-believers to a fire of hell and by English uh, uh, reputation, by rumor, the Sunnis would sacrifice a camel every year, which represented their irrationality and violence. So I'll end here. The story goes on into the later 18th century, but I'll stop here to give you some sense of how uh, descriptions of religion were not monolithic. There isn't one colonial racial pejorative tradition. Religions are seen with some variation, but this is due to the political agendas of the British Empire in this period. So I will, I will stop there and thank you for listening. All right. Mark, do you mind uh, moving out of um, the screen share mode for just a second? We'll do that. There we Excellent. go. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for that lovely talk. Um, 
And while everybody is thinking about uh, questions that they might want to bring to um, Dr. Verlari, um, I'll get us started with a sort of easy one. Um, your talk gets at the, the range of religious uh, depictions that we have here. We have indigenous religions. Um, we have, of course, anti-Catholicism. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and certainly um, depictions of Islam. Um, how are the creators of these books learning about these religions? What sources are they drawing upon? And how are they going about assembling them? Well, that's a really good question. Um, they have been assembling since about 1600 accounts of travelers, uh, merchants going about the world as navigation extends and trade extends and commerce becomes uh, an international affair. They're getting, uh, Europeans, Brits knew about Islam, of course, uh, from the ninth century. They had encounters from North Africa, from Spain. So they knew about Islam, but they knew about uh, East Asian religions, South Asian religions, from uh, Catholic mission, Jesuit missionaries who gave accounts of their travels and, and, and explained the ceremonies. They had uh, a, a, books of travel that were published that excerpted these. Uh, uh, Hacklett and Perkis produce, uh, compiling these merchants' voyages and different tales where they would encounter different religious people. The earlier, the early uh, English people in uh, Virginia and New England telling stories about their encountering with Aboriginal people, stories of Spanish uh, missionaries in Spanish conquistadors telling the story of South American peoples. So they had this body of, of literature. It's, it was an amazing excitement in this period. One writer wrote in about 1689 that if you want to sell a good, if you want to sell well in London in 1689, 1690, publish a book on religion, meaning the world's religions. It's a big seller. Hmm. That's where they were getting this material from, from these previous, previously published books and accounts. Merchants, ambassadors, uh, with diplomatic reports from different areas as well. I, I suppose I've got a related question here, if I can um, tax my, uh, my uh, guest here. Um, who are these writers? I mean, it seems like they're awfully close to state power. And part of the appeal of these sort of non-coercive religions is that they don't sort of um, <laughs> compromise that state authority. I'm curious to know who they are and what sort of networks they're drawing upon to publish these works. You mean the 18th century writers? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, Broughton was a parish priest, and uh, he wasn't especially connected to power. He was a little bit of a dilettante. He wrote the English language librettos for Handel's, uh, several of Handel's operas. Uh, he, was, he was sort of a nerd, a little scholarly nerd, who, who, had, who had access to these compilations, these travel accounts, these other stories, these missionary narratives, and he put them together in this dictionary form. He hired actually another Frenchman to do that engraving at the front of his mm. book. Uh, Bernard and Picard are, uh, have this massive library at Amsterdam. They are not themselves politically connected, uh, but they know of, they, they meet English exiles in Amsterdam and The Hague who are politically connected, who are involved in the Williamite uh, rebellion 1688 and who have ties uh, so most of them actually aren't 
directly in positions of power, but they, do, they are invested in the Whig parliament and the Hanoverian monarchy. They uh, div, uh, preface many of their books with epistles dedicated to typically Whig members of parliament or Whig patrons. So they don't exercise power themselves, but they certainly have investment in a religious system that does not threaten the political solidarity of the empire. So I've got a good little queue of questions now for you. Um, one arose when you were discussing an engraving from the Bernard and Picard um, image. And the question is from Patrick Bellari asking, is this obeisance admirable in any way? Quiet devotion and a sense of sublimity is admirable especially if it leads one to benevolence, to uh, concern for one's fellow citizen, to learnedness, to um, economic utility, honesty, and industriousness. If there's a form of devotion that leads to that, that is good, but it tends to be quiet and rather pensive, rather rational almost in a sense. But devotion which leads one to ecstasy, to losing one's mind, to uh, becoming so zealous that one forgets, uh, one begins to disregard one's neighbor, one begins to grasp for power or, or be coercive. If you have a conversation with someone from a different religious tradition, it's a mark whether you try to uh, threaten that person with civil penalties or everlasting fire to get them to convert or whether you try to give rational moral arguments to get them to convert. So there's a certain kind of, uh, obeisance is, is really not an admirable feature for these 18th century writers on, on the religions of the world. Hmm. Great question. We've got another one from Dee Andrews who commends you for a wonderful talk and asks whether you have any sense of whether um, John Wesley uh, was influenced by these contrasting ideas of global religions, given the influence of Moravians on the Methodists, and how might that, that have affected his ways uh, to present uh, evangelical enthusiasm as non-threatening? That is a, and of course Dee would ask about Methodists, but that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, Wesley did read this stuff, and uh, he, he read, I believe he cites Broughton at one point, place, but he certainly cites other writers in this period of different religions. He's very interested. He's interested in Native American traditions. He's interested in uh, Central Europe and what goes on in Catholicism. And um, Wesley would argue that high ceremonial, uh, high ceremonialism was the danger of Catholicism as well as the danger of high Anglicanism, the church which eventually expelled him. And the evangelical experience fit the criteria of good religion perfectly well because it was non-coercive. It called people to choose as individuals for their, as individuals to choose for themselves their religious custom and tradition. Hmm. It, it appealed to rationale, it, it appealed to moral sense. According to Wesley, the, the zealots were the Anglicans who were like Catholics. Interestingly enough, Wesley's 
Anglican critics accused him of being Catholic-like because of his emotionalism and enthusiasm, that he was the one pushing people off of the sturdy rationality of moral religion and pushing them into excess and zeal. So the argument went back and forth, but Wesley was certainly aware of this in his notion that conversion should be freely chosen and not assumed as a birthright of being English. He thought fit this new pattern. While we're on the topic of Anglicanism, I would like to bring in Eleanor Anderson, who asks, was there any distinguishable, any distinguishable difference in the tone of images produced by the different parties of churchmanship in the Church of England? There was a relative um, uh, steady cast of images that were used and transferred from book to book. So one would say that the, the Tory Anglicans tended to rely on the earlier set of images. I showed you a set of two pictures of, of uh, Algonquian Tidewater religion. The image on the right that was menacing would have been used by Tories to make a warning against any religious deviance. The image on the left, which was appealing to a common religious sentiment, across all, all good religious traditions would have been more favored by low church Anglicans, latitudinarians, Whigs, and those who had ties in New England. So uh, we have a question from Kate Farmer. How did British leaders' fear of politically dominant religions like Roman Catholicism influence the founders and the American constitution? <laughs> uh, that's, that's excellent. So as you, you can imagine, uh, the founders, when they wrote about uh, religion and the role of religion, were first of all very wary of, uh, of religious traditions that would grasp for power. And the uh, Jeffersonian sense that religion ought not to be part of the public sphere, it's a different form of language and discourse certainly drew upon this, this literature, this tradition. Uh, I don't know of other founders who wrote about other religious traditions, but my sense is one could read the founders' wariness of anything but a broad-based Protestantism. So some of the founders wanted a religious establishment. I mean, they, this, was, this was a close call for the founders. The religious establishment that was wanted was mainstream Protestant. It was low church or Whig Anglicanism in the South. It, it was uh, the congregational order in New England. It was a broad-based tolerance for uh, all religious traditions of all sorts in, in the middle colonies. So there was a difference amongst them, but they did have a sense that all of them drew upon this. It had become a very popular common social trope. High ceremony, zeal, coerciveness, and grasping for power was dangerous. And that might help inform our understanding of what came to be a church-state separation mm. image, a trope. It's informed more by 
an attempt to bring the nation together under political power than it is to protect the religious rights of any group of people in particular. It is about building the nation and doing away with faction. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, the fear of faction then becomes a fear of religious zealotry in the founders' writings. Yeah, certainly fear of factions all over the Federalist Papers. <laughs> yeah. um, so dwelling a little bit on politics, uh, Valerie Kling uh, brings us to the question of patronage. Um, so were the patrons of the book authors and illustrators who um, uh, charged them with a certain agenda to fulfill by way of these works? <laughs> Undoubtedly, yes, in that the patrons, uh, patronage uh, operates really interestingly in this period. Uh, most of these writers I've drawn upon aren't patronized in the sense that their profession is funded by elites or aristocrats, but the publication of their books often is. So it's not their livelihood as writers that is patronized so much as the publication of their material is patronized. Uh, subscribe, so when books were published in this period, I mentioned this in Broughton, uh, they would often receive subscriptions for the book and payment up front even before the book was printed so that the printers would be assured that they would sell enough copies to justify the printing. So publishers would go out and receive subscriptions. And those subscription lists were people who vouched to pay for the book once it was out. That's a form of patronage that was used in this period. And the, the books on the world's religions were often patronized by Whiggish political figures who had ties to Parliament into the Hanoverian monarchy. Although uh, I must say that uh, George II actually became himself somewhat of a patron of many of these works. So I will uh, say it is true that George II began to patronize uh, some of these works with royal grants and funds. Hmm. Interesting. I have a question from Carl Lothman. It's capacious in scope. Is this shift in religious depictions typical among different periods or eras, or is this something really associated with the Enlightenment movement? Well, I, I think this is a major shift in the modern period. I mean, before this this period, uh, there there is not the knowledge of and literature about the religions of the world to produce this kind of this kind of literature there simply isn't enough material so this is the first period in which in which one gets a knowledge um, of of the various religious options open to uh, humanity if you will i mean it is again it is remarkable to me that uh, I have a, a, the diary of a common ordinary school teacher, not well known at all in New England, who carries in his satchel, as he, as he goes from town to town in New England teaching, he carries um, uh, notes on the different religions of the world. He, if he's teaching from his notes, he's teaching these little New England school children about the eight fundamental precepts of Islam and how they have been added to by the three extra precepts of Islam, such as when a slave may be freed if they convert to Islam and, and such things. 
it is really interestingly widespread more than we would think. Sermons, I have sermons of otherwise unknown preachers, certainly the big known preachers such as Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley knew this literature, but also country parsons who never published a thing or published one or two sermons would mention the religions of the world, would mention what Chinese religion is like. Um, what the religion of Mexico is, etc. It is widespread in this period. That produces the initial disparaging response of the 17th century, the Restoration period, and then with this change to a more open response. What happens in the night? Does this recur? I think uh, Carl is asking. Does this recur? Well, there is in the 19th century a highly racialized view of other religions, where religion progresses through a state of savagery and darkness, racial language, it's in the 19th century, to a higher form. And it reaches its culmination in, of course, Protestant Christianity. Uh, that is a racialized form that is pejorative in its own way and very much colonial. This is the period of colonial empire uh, across the world in strong sense. And that has to be deconstructed, if you will, or challenged and critiqued in the late 19th and early 20th century. So I would say there maybe is a second bout of deconstructing a highly chauvinistic narrative in putting in its place a more empirically sensitive and variegated narrative in the, in the 20th century. That was a great question to sort of open things up. And before I let you go, I just wanted to get a sense of what form this project is going to take. Is this going to be an article, a book? Is this just a, a passion project? <laughs> uh, thanks for asking. Um, it is hopefully going to be a book. I've written chapters that talk about the early period. There are chapters that talk about how different ideas of conversion uh, follow with each description, different modes of describing different religions. Where do we get the modern notion that conversion, one is freely choosing one's religious belief? Uh, that would be an absurd concept in 1660. Uh, conversion in that period means something else. Where do we get a modern notion, even uh, an evangelical notion with Wesley and Edwards, that one has to choose what one believes? That has to do with encounters with different religions. So there are chapters on conversion. It starts in 1660. It ends uh, in, a, in a epilogue on the American Revolution as a political conversion. So um, I've written two-thirds, three-quarters of the book and hope to be done, uh, fingers crossed, uh, by the end of next year. Well, as soon as that book's done, we're going to drag you back to the library company and give you another platform to talk about it. Um, thank you so much for sharing your research with us, Mark. And um, for those of you who are interested in this or who want to share it with um, friends or colleagues, uh, we will be sending out a link to a YouTube video that will be static in the next week, along with some notes that Mark and I will compile after the fact. So look for that in your inbox sometime soon. Looking ahead, next Thursday, we'll be joined by Adam Lotz, uh, who's going to be speaking about Joseph Lancaster in the Delusion of Public Schools, 1818 to 1838. Thank you all for joining me. Thanks for being here, everyone. Mm -hmm.